Hi, this is Chris from the Cold Film Companion Podcast. Just a brief note about this episode. Due to some technical issues, the audio quality is not up to the usual standards that we provide on this podcast. But we thought we'd uh, give you a chance to listen to it anyway. And if you find the audio too distracting, there's plenty of other episodes to check out. If not, uh, please hopefully enjoy uh, the episode of us talking about the Warriors as much as we enjoyed watching the Warriors and discussing it with each other. So, And it was released shortly thereafter in February of 1979. The movie is the story of a gang who must make a 30-mile trek from the north end of the Bronx to Coney Island, where they call home. The movie is based on the Saul Urich 1965 novel, also named The Warriors, which he wrote in response to the romanticized version of gangs that he saw in such projects like West Side Story and based it on his own work as a social worker in New York City. His book is based on Anubis by Xenophone, who was an ancient Greek pro-soldier professional soldier, and writer. It tells the story of a Greek mercenaries hired by Cyrus the Younger to help him seize the throne of Persia from his brother Antaxerex, butchering that name, the second in 401 BC. Now, while the movie is based on the novel, a great number of changes were made, such as the inclusion of white gang members. Initially in the novel and in the screenplay, the gangs were solely African-American and Hispanic. But the group of the warriors and other gangs throughout the movie come from all different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Andrew, would you like to talk a little bit about the cast of the movie to start things off? Uh, hi, this is Andrew. Sure. Um, I mean, actually, I, I was just thinking I forgot to r- write down the characters' names, uh, and it would be beneficial to, to have done that. I have um, some of them here, if you need some. I, I know you do, so I'll just refer <laughs> to you. The, the, um, the first surprise for me, I mean, this is obviously, this is an ensemble movie, but it does have uh, a star, like in in... Michael Beck, and I didn't know Michael Beck was in this movie, and I know him. Uh, I know him from Xanadu, and it's funny. He he said in himself that uh, Warriors opened doors for him in Hollywood that Xanadu later closed. So I, I think that's really amusing. And in the movie, in the movie Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with uh, Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr., there's a running joke about Michael Beck throughout the whole movie, but they they only tie it in. From my memory, they only tie it into Xanadu. There's no mention of the Warriors at all. So it was a big surprise to be watching Warriors and see his name at the top top build uh, on the opening credits. Uh, so his character... I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, his character, just, uh, just for you and the audience, his, his character is Swan, who becomes the default leader for the Warriors after uh, Cleon... I believe that's the character's name, Cleon, 
is, uh, is he, it's not shown, but it's understood that he was killed during the um, initial gathering of the gangs, the cavalcade. And the, um, the cavalcade was a, was, um, a chance for Cyrus, um, was trying to unify all the gangs of New York City, and, um, he's killed during this cavalcade, and it's blamed on the warriors, and prior to this, there was an understood, uh, treat, uh, peace treaty, that no gang members were going to war with one another um, ostensibly until after the cavalcade and they've kind of united or been unionized. Um, so he becomes the default leader of the Warriors. It's uh, nine members of each gang uh, were invited to the cavalcade. And there we meet um, the nine members of the Warriors and we're introduced to them through a, a montage of them kind of goofing off and talking about the meeting and how they'd never been to the Bronx before and them riding the subway. And that's how the movie opens. Uh, and that's how the movie opened initially, except for the uh, director's cut added a prologue, which Walter Hill wanted. And the prologue is done in a in the sense, um, in the manner of a graphic novel, and different splash pages and splash panels transitioned are used throughout the movie to, to move us from one scene to another. And Walter Hill, when he was told that he couldn't have an all-African-American and Hispanic gang as the central characters, he decided to go into a, a comic book version of, of the book. And that's kind of uh, meta, self-referential, the fact that in the novel, one of the gang members, Junior, uh, is actually reading a comic book version of the events that transpire. Oh, that's wild. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, I can riff on this. Please. So, now first of all, um, I tried finding that alternate intro, uh, and I and I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't find it on YouTube, at least. But what I did find was an opening scene that had been shot that wasn't used, and it was um, it was the Warriors at Coney Island during the day, the day of the conference that's happening that evening. And it was uh, subsequently deleted, they said, because it took place during the day and they wanted all of the movie to take place at night. Uh, and what's interesting is that opening was used, the one that I was able to see on YouTube, was actually used in a TV airing, a television airing of, of the movie. Uh, so that's an interesting, that's an, you know, so then they reshot, they reshot uh, going at night, going on the subway and used a lot of those lines for that subway ride on the way to the conference itself. Now, the, the actor who is assassinated, the character that is assassinated at the conference... Cyrus. Have we, have we gotten to him yet? What's his name? His name is Cyrus, and he's actually named Cyrus uh, based on 
the Greek story that the book was based on. Ah. So that's where he got the name Cyrus, and his um, his speech is uh, it's a very, it's a brief speech, but it's very powerful, and he talks about how every every gang is fighting for their little piece of turf, and he says a very each little piece of turf, and he talks yeah, about yeah. uniting them, and then he um. He does his fa- uh, now famous quote, I believe, three times of, Can you dig it? <laughs> and it starts out, it starts out very kind of like, Can you dig it? And then by the end, it's like, like he goes into this like guttural, throaty voice of, Now can you dig it? And uh, that might be um, racially insensitive of me now in hindsight doing that voice, but it's uh, Can You Dig It? And it's just a great line, and he delivers it so well. And initially, they had an actual gang member um, casted to be Cyrus, but he disappeared, and um, so they hired a professional actor to take it on. I find that extremely interesting. I found the actor who did it, although he was good, um, to be kind of stagey. And I think it would have been uh, very, very interesting to have a real gang leader do that. Considering everything that happened around this movie, um, something definitely was up with his disappearance. He He disappeared at the very last moment when they were going to film uh, that scene. So, um... Something happened. He was never heard from again. No, so, I mean, they I never. Know, you know, I don't know what what the, what happened. Something happened. They never found that. Him. Yeah. So, uh, this movie was shot, with the exception of one fight scene that takes place in a bathroom, was shot entirely on practical locations in New York City, and they, for a movie about gangs, they, uh, in ran into some situations with actual gangs during the production of this movie. They weren't too happy. But other gangs, uh, one in particular called the Mongrels, were hired as protection for the act, for the, uh, for, uh, like the various film trucks and buses and campers. So they were hired as protection, but they did run into some situations with, um, actual gang members, and for a movie about gangs, this particular movie is done in such a heightened sense of reality, and it's set in the not, I guess they say the not-so-distant future, sometime in the future. They took that back, didn't they? They removed that caption that was going to, that was up, I think, at the beginning of the movie. Oh, right. Um, they might have removed it because it was too similar to Star Wars? Maybe. Sure. So. Yeah. But, um. So this movie was, um, one of several gang movies being produced around the same time. In particular, it was in direct competition with a movie called The Wanderers. And it was. Put into the theaters 
um, very, very soon after completion of filming and post-production in order to beat the Wanderers. And the movie initially was not well-received by critics whatsoever. And led to some vandalism of theaters and actually three killings at viewings of the movie. Two murders happened in Southern California, one in Boston. And the movie was on its way to becoming a very financial success, except that due to this vandalism and the murders, First, the advertising was removed. All radio and television ads were removed. Then additional security was provided by the film studio for the theaters. And eventually, after about two weeks, they were relieved of their contractual obligation to play the movie. And most of the theaters chose to stop um, showings of the Warriors because of the gang activity and violence that became associated with the movie. So, from the beginning to the end, we are dealing with a very heavy gang influence uh, around this movie about gangs. Uh, from its from its, uh, from its its filming all the way up to its release. Uh, this, in, a, in and of itself, makes the movie... Uh, uh, a time capsule for history. There's something historical about it. It's uh, it's pinpointing a certain place in time where Hollywood was going to be creating their own version of what gangs are uh, and were at that time. Yes, it was based on a novel, but it was still... Uh, probably in some way or another trying to be relevant to days of of the late 70s as well. So this had all sorts of reactions, obviously, from the gang, from the actual real gangs um, in the city at that time. Well, I guess not even in the city. Gangs are pretty much a worldwide network. So, So that's the scoop with the Warriors. It's not just a movie. This is, this is kind of a documentation of, uh, of gang, Gang activity during that time, and uh, so like I mentioned earlier, this was a. Uh, it was written in response to the glamorization of like, I guess, nice gangs and West Side Story. They they sing and they dance, you know. Right. And Saul Yurick, the the author of the novel, went for a more realistic portrayal based on his own experiences, and this movie is interesting because. It doesn't really judge gang members. It's it's a very neutral portrayal of them. It's a realistic portrayal, a heightened portrayal, but a very stylized one. And it doesn't really show gangs necessarily as a social problem that some of uh, previous movies about gangs have shown and... It's a very restrained look. It doesn't glamorize the gangs, but it doesn't judge them either. It's just 
kind of just like a slice of life. It's like one life, uh, one night in the lives of these gang members. And it doesn't have a message trying to, you know, trying to change gangs necessarily either that certain movies do. Um, and it's more just a, it's just a, you know, we see the gang members and for a movie that, um, actually caused such real life violence, the violence in the movie is not very graphic. No, it's not. Um, Except for that one scene in the bathroom that they filmed on a set. Yeah, um... And even that, it's not necessarily graphic, it's just it's violent. And I think it's interesting because certain people associate certain gang movies with certain periods of time, and for this particular gang movie, the only two gangs that actually use guns are the rogues, the leader of which shoots Cyrus that sets off the whole adventure, and then the all-female gang, the Lizzies, they they try to take some shots at the Warriors at one point. Other than that, though, um, it's a lot of hand-to-hand combat, baseball bats, um, and the violence isn't graphic, it isn't gory, and I think the reason that it caused such I guess, I don't know if you want to say turmoil or cause such controversies because gang members were drawn to a gang movie and right across the aisle you're seeing rival gang members. So, you know, there's going to be some some tension there and obviously it erupted into real-life violence costing the lives of three people, which, you know, I'm not... It, con- could, have been part of, it could have also been part of a ploy to shut down the movie to not have it be... A- a box office success. I'm not saying that killing would actually, you know, murder would actually be part of that, you know, that that goal. But, you know, there could have been kind of like, let's shut this movie down. We're going to, you know, create... They're going to see what real gang violence is like. <laughs> and uh, well, the, the producers didn't, didn't think that this was going to be a huge financial success. They didn't think they had a hit on their hands. Um, at the time, and... Really? Yeah, they were, um... So, like a previous movie we discussed on the podcast, this movie came up, came about because another movie fell apart. And, um... So, Walter Hill likes to say that every single movie that he's ever directed, um is a Western in one way or another. And he's quoted as saying, the Western is ultimately a stripped-down moral universe that is, whatever the dramatic problems are, beyond the normal avenues of social control and social alleviation of the problem. And I like to do that even within contemporary stories. So he... What was was the... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to give a, uh, some of the movies uh, uh, that he'd done. He started out as an assistant director. Uh, he actually worked for Woody Allen on a movie. Then he started getting into writing screenplays and eventually directing movies of his own. 
some of the other movies that Walter Hill has directed are Hard Times, The Driver, Southern Comfort, which makes for a great double feature with Deliverance, 48 Hours, Last Man Standing, Red Heat, and his only comedy to date, Brewster's Millions with uh, Richard Pryor. Oh my god, he did Brewster's Millions. <laughs> Alright. So, uh, his argument for all every movie of his being a western, uh, I've seen some of these movies, and I could see where he's kind of coming from, although I, I don't see how any way you look at it, Brewster's Millions is uh, a western. A western. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and is that the one with also Jackie Gleason? No, that's the toy. Okay. I'm thinking of something else. I believe John Candy's John Candy, I believe, is in Brewster's Millions. Oh wow! Okay, I think so. Um, okay. He also Walter Hill also has a very interesting history with the Alien movies. Are you familiar with that at all? I read a little bit about it, but I don't remember what I read. So go ahead. Uh, so he started uh, Brandywine Productions, which uh, produced the first. Alien movie for Ridley Scott, and he was also a co-producer and co-writer on Alien 3, directed and then disowned by David Fincher. So, wow, David Fincher disowned Alien 3? Yes. It was, I think I remember that it was kind of taken out of his hands um, at some point. Wow. Oh, wait. Okay. Uh, diverse. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm sure we'll get to okay. David Fincher one of these days on the show. But, um, yeah. so, interestingly enough, there was an independent movie filmed overseas called Madman, which starred a then-unknown Michael Beck and a then-unknown Sigourney Weaver. After seeing Madman, uh... Sigourney Weaver secured the role of Ripley in Alien, and the rest is history. All right, got it. Yep, and that was Michael Beck's first start. Uh, is with that movie as well, his big break actually. Yes, and um, so some of the other notable names in the cast are. Um, So we had Michael Beck as Swan, James Remar as Ajax, Brian Tyler played Snow, David Harris played Cochise, and um, one of the actors down here I have uh, who portrayed Rembrandt unfortunately passed away. He was young. He passed away uh, a couple years after the movie was made. Rembrandt had the, um, the afro and the spray paint aptly named, you know, for being Rembrandt, so he was the one marking all the warrior's territory throughout the course of the he movie. He ended up dying? Yeah. Shortly after? He did. Unfortunately. Oh, uh, okay. Alright. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Really, uh, I had to kind of adjust to the acting style to be at the beginning. Uh, and, but once I did, I was able to get into the characters. Uh, but at, at, 
at first it seemed very stylized, very heightened, just even just the way they were delivering their lines. Um, but, you know, once you get involved with them and what's going on, things became more and more realistic. It's, it's interesting because it is a stylized movie, but you get into these scenes that are very uh, slice-of-life, cut-and-dry type of uh, situations, especially with, with, the, with, the, <laughs> with the Lizzie's. Is that, supposed, I mean, is that supposed to be like a, a riff on the Lizzie's? Because it's all women. You know, it's interesting. I had the I had the exact same thought, and yeah, I mean, it's hard not to think that. <laughs> as much you know, it's it's something because in all the um behind the scenes footage and you know interviews with the the actors and the crew, the Lizzies is, is one of the gangs they talk about quite a bit because they have um they're one of the more uh, gangs they get a lot of uh focus in the movie but they never once brought up um the idea of um of the gang being uh lesbians although it's kind of hinted at uh some of the women are dancing with each other in the apartment yeah but then yeah. It, um and it, and it, it seems it seems more and more as if they would not be bringing guys over to their place as the scene goes on Yes. That, yeah, that, that, that it definitely is a ploy. It's a trap, as we find out. What are you going to say? Um, some of the other gangs, I suppose, we should talk about. So the Warriors are our protagonists, our anti-heroes that we follow throughout the course of their journey from one end of New York to the other. And... So there is initially a peace treaty of all the gangs, and we get a we get a glimpse of just how many people, residents of New York City, are gang members in the uh, the opening scene of the uh, the conference. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you said you recognized where that was filmed. Yes, that was that was uh, Riverside Park. I used to live a few blocks away from there, so they're supposed to be going to the Bronx. Uh, that's that scene is supposed to be in the Bronx, but it's filmed in River, Riverside Park, which is uh, upper Upper West Side, upper 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 West Side, like up in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Yeah, and then they also they also use the Hoyt Shimmerhorn uh, subway stop in Brooklyn for Ninety Second Street. Uh, a lot, so I noticed that as well. And I think that's one of the, I think that's kind of like at the time was New York City's default. Okay, if you're going to be shooting a movie, this is the subway station you can use. Pretty much, I think it's I think it's used. The Hoyt, the Hoyt, the Hoyt Shimmerhorn subway stop is enormous. Um, so it's a good place to to film. It's like they're they're tracks upon tracks and platforms upon platforms. I used to go there and, and, and stage little scenarios, you know, like theatrical uh, things on platforms in my mind when I was waiting for a subway. That's how conducive it is to, you know, filming something. So, the gangs, then. We should probably talk about the gangs, because the gangs are, you know, why people watch this movie. And... Okay. I think that if you didn't have such interesting and unique 
gangs, I don't think this movie would have been as memorable. But Walter Hill um, and his co-writer, they really put the effort into creating very unique looks for all these gangs. It should be noted that none of the gang names from the novel carried over into the movie. So all the gangs, all the gangs that we see throughout the movie were all creations of uh, Walter Hill and uh, his co-writer for the movie, whose name escapes me, but I will find it in my notes and mention the screenwriter once I find them. But I guess for me, the opening scene, we, we get to see Cyrus's gang is the Gramercy Riffs. And they are the ones trying to unite all the rest of the gangs. And we get a glimpse of just how big this gang problem issue is in this scene at uh, Riverside Park, was it? Yes. So, it's... Nine members of each gang were invited to this cavalcade meeting, and they used... I mean, that's a huge huge crowd that gathers. Only nine members of each gang were allowed to, to show up. So how many gangs is that? Because it seemed like there were thousands of people there. Uh, if I went through... They... If I went through the entire list of gangs just created for the movie, we would we would be here all night talking about them. But you know, I, right. <laughs> I've, I've seen that list. I've seen that list. I know what you're it's, talking about. It's, okay. So to film the scene, they had um, probably near a, a thousand people there. And they all had to be... I mean, that's that's a lot of people to be getting wardrobe for and directing them and then it's one thing to have all these people standing around listening to a speech but once the uh, assassination of cyrus takes place uh all chaos breaks loose because the cops show up and everyone's running in every direction imaginable and the assistant director was talking about how he would take a hundred people and tell them to run to the left. The next hundred people run to the right, and so on and so forth, switching them back and forth. So you would have a hundred, couple hundred people running this way, hundred people running the other way, and it looks like absolute chaos. But they filmed it, and it looks beautiful. It's like a well-shot scene. It's um, it's amazing to see all these, and we only get a taste at this point of what some of the gang members look like. They all have a unique. Uh, look to them. The warriors all have um, leather jackets, uh, bare chests, and uh, you know, red red leather jackets. Red leather jackets. They got their, they red, got red their, they got their gang colors on, and um, so do all the other gangs. They all have some of them are uh, like dressed up. I remember. The, you don't really see much of them, but there's one gang that's all wearing like old-fashioned zoot suits, and there's a gang on <laughs> there's a gang on roller skates, uh, and then uh, so the warriors start off. Now, what, I'm sorry. Now what's 
Now what's interesting? I just wanna I wanna riff on this whole opening sequence for a minute. Now what's Please. what's also what's also um, worth considering is that not only do you have gang real gang members in that scene, uh, and then gang members that were hired to be security for that for that for that whole scene as well, but then you also had undercover cops that were in that scene. Uh, working with <laughs> working with everybody else, so that's just you know layers upon layers of you've got cops and gang members working together on a movie set about gangs. How crazy is that? Pretty crazy, pretty crazy. I also want to mention, I believe that that assassination. I don't. I mean, that must be in the novel. That must be how the novel starts out. But there was. I read that there was an assassination around 1970 of a gang member. That highly influenced uh, the opening sequence as well. That's that, and that, yeah, and that that member, that gang member was 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 uh, a proponent, was advocating peace amongst the gangs, and he was assassinated with the hopes of that that prospect deteriorating. But actually, the gangs went forward with that idea, with that plan, and started to create peace negotiations with with each other even after his uh, assassination. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. that, I mean that, that's like the exact opposite of what you kind of would expect to happen. Which, yeah. Right. And it's the exact opposite of what actually happens here. In the movie. So our, um, our group of warriors is cut down to eight immediately because um, the rogues who assassinated Cyrus try to pin the, uh, the assassination on the warriors, and their leader, I guess they call him a war chief, uh, Cleon goes to try to clear up the situation, but the rogues out him as the killer, even though he's not, and he's immediately taken away by the Gramercy Rifts, so we're just left with eight warriors, who's, then the whole movie is just them trying to get back to to their home turf of Coney Island. And I think what this movie does so well is if you're not a resident of New York City and you're not familiar with the New York City subway system, this movie does a great job of having scenes of them actually, like... Because they're not familiar with the Bronx. They're, they've never been there before. They're, they're Coney Island boys, and that's their turf, and they usually stick to it. So it actually has scenes of them trying to figure out a subway map and joking about how complicated it is, and one of them actually figures out, okay, this is exactly the route that we need to take in order to get back to Coney Island. So I think that those scenes do a great job of um, grounding you as a, as a viewer um, into what kind of situation you're there in, and you're kind of there along with them. And they're plotting out their course home along with you. It's nothing, you know, it's a great way of providing exposition, but not just having them blatantly say, blah, 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 this is what we have to do to get home. They're figuring it out as they go. And I think that's a, that's a great storytelling device, because I think a movie of lesser quality probably would have just had one character do a big exposition dump about this is how we get home. Okay, gotcha. Sure. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk for a minute about the characters that a couple characters. First of all, that die basically. Okay. Now, the the one that is really into the party at the Lizzie's, and that actor. What's that character's name? The actor was going to be played by Tony Danza, and Tony Danza did Taxi instead. Do you know who I'm talking about? He's kind of a Guido-esque type of guy. Is it Ajax? No. Ajax... He's ne- sitting on the couch with the girls. I think that might be Snow. Okay. Uh, okay. Eight, he, was supposed, he was supposed to get shot and killed in that scene. Yeah. In one of the, in one of the early screenplays. I do remember reading that, yes. Yeah, and then one of the actors, one of the characters, there's a character that dies uh, very unexpectedly under a train, a subway train, and you never see him again. It's actually, and it's almost implied, you think, oh, maybe he survived, maybe he's under the train of the tracks, but you never see him again. And that actor actually had a problem with either the director or some part of the creative team, and I think left the movie. That's how they let him leave the movie, or that's how they fired him. That's how they fired. They. That's how he was fired. Um, yeah. He had a big. Hit him and Walter Hill were having a lot of problems. I'm trying to find the actor's name. I know he goes. It's interesting because um, he chose after the the falling out with the director. He chose to go uncredited. So if you watch right. the yeah. So if you watch the movie, he's actually not even credited. So I'm trying to find where exactly his name is, but his character was um was supposed to have a more prominent role, and I think, actually, he was going to make it to, to the end of the movie, and, uh, n- due to his he, fault... I'm sorry? He might have been the original love interest for the girl. Mercy. 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 Yes. Wonderful Mercy. Yeah. She was originally intended to be the love interest of another another one of the gang members, not Michael Bex. Correct. And... Yeah. So... There were a lot of script changes made. Um, yes, that actor was supposed to... His character was supposed to be uh, the love interest from Mercy. And Swan was actually supposed to be kidnapped at one point by a gang that is implied to be all sadomasochist homosexuals with Doberman pinchers. And, yeah, and I think Kevin Bacon was going to be one of them. It's uh, well, that would just yeah, that would just help out in the game of um, six degrees, <laughs> six <laughs> degrees of Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Bacon. All right? <laughs> you, you don't need any help with that. No. So, <laughs> so yeah. the character we're talking about was Fox, and okay, the actor was Thomas G. Waits, and he. So yeah, it was actually it was kind of a, like a spur-of-the-moment day of that Walter Hill had enough of him and basically said to the uh, the stunt coordinator, figure out an interesting way we can kill him. I've had... <laughs> uh, 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 uh. He had enough. So Fox... So Fox is... is, uh, t- is during one of their many um, ways of... Uh, so they basically need to take the subway and take a couple uh, stops and transfers to get to Coney Island. And uh, one of the, um, one of the uh, stations 
they're stopped by the police, and this was when um, the character, after a tussle with the police, it, he's thrown in front of the an oncoming subway train. Right. Right. Very unceremoniously. And that was and abruptly. So that and that was because of that was because Walter Hill didn't like him at the time, and he didn't like Walter Hill at the time, so they had a lot of uh, bad blood between them. I, I th- well, what the hell? What about the movie? So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's one of those... I think it's one of those things that... Um, it's such an ensemble piece that if he was like... Maybe if he was Swan and he was like the lead warrior, you know... They might have tried to work it out, but I guess Walter Hill had a short fuse that day and said, just figure out a way to kill him. And it's interesting. <laughs> so he it's, says, you know what, he, Walter Hill has said that he feels very bad about that to this, today. No, but that's, and that's, and from yeah. what I've heard, there's no bad blood between them anymore. Um, and I think actually the actor said that he regretted uh, going uncredited for the movie, because he probably had, you know, he had probably had some sour grapes after the incident happened. He probably said, "Fuck this movie. I've had enough. I don't care. I don't even want to be credited." And then, so this movie, uh, it took off like wildfire. And even when it was yanked from theaters, it really found its. Uh, its audience on home video and cable television, and has since grown to become a huge cult classic now. And and the actor has said in hindsight that he regrets not being credited. Although now, thanks to the internet and IMDb and Google, it's easy to find you know who played who in the movie. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting. Like you said, there's no kind of regard for his character. And it's very unceremoniously he's killed off. And let's take that idea and apply it to Ajax, who is probably the most unlikable warrior, played by James Remar. He's um. Is he the one who says faggot all the time and is always he uh, challenging Swan? He does. Yeah, he wants to be war chief. He thinks that he should be the leader after um, Cleon was taken out. And he's he's um, he's shown to be kind of a bonehead. He's not the brightest bulb. And he's boxing, like, things on the subway, and he's talking about how badass he is. And um, he's, yeah, he drops a couple F-bombs, not, not fuck, the, uh, the derogatory uh, homophobic uh, F-word. Several times, and he's uh, constantly just wanting to f- to fight his way out of a situation, and he's he's unlikable, but he's given more regard than Fox was, and Fox, you know, whether the actor and the director had a disagreement, Fox was a more likable character. But people, like, the gang members seem more concerned about Ajax and, um, than they do about Fox. Do they? Yeah, after he so... 
so following another run-in with a different gang, Ajax and the um, Swan and I'm trying to think of the other characters. Two more that that fight uh, my favorite gang in the movie, the Baseball Furies. And the Baseball Furies, if you haven't seen the movie, are basically a gang of guys in their 30s that put on retro, old-fashioned baseball uniforms and baseball hats, cleats, and then paint their faces like they were uh, auditioning for Marilyn Manson and run around with baseball bats. They, they look like mimes. They even do mime tricks with their baseball bats. And, and their fight with the Warriors is, uh, I believe it was shot in Central Park. It's supposed to be Central Park. And a lot of the actors did their own stunts. They kind of went to stunt school before this movie was filmed. Um, Walter Hill wanted a very like, a sense of realism of a uh, real grit, so he kind of put the actors, he wanted the actors to be able to do as much fighting and stunts on their own as they possibly could. And it's interesting because it's almost the way the Baseball Furies kind of attack with their bats, it's almost like ninjas or samurais with their, uh, with their swords, in a way. Yeah. It is. Yep. Very well choreographed fight scene. Yep. Now, did you have a, um, a favorite gang in the movie? Any, anyone particular, or like a favorite gang member that kind of like stuck out to you? Um, I got a kick out of the ones where they meet Mercy. Um, even though they were the they orphans. Were the orphans. What's that? The, the, the orphans. Who the were, orphans. Who were really butthurt because they weren't invited to the, um... <laughs> to the conference. <laughs> they, were, they were too low on a total... They, they to, so there, there was probably, you know, over a thousand gang members at this I at know. this conference and not one I orphan was invited. And they're, they're, like, they're like a, a thousand... They're all like a thousand and one on the list of gangs and so they didn't make the cut. And um, yeah, you can almost see the, like, the look yeah, of dis- the look of disappointment when they find out about it. The meeting, they were like, "Yeah, well, how come the orphans weren't invited?" Yeah, yeah, they did that really well. The gang leader did that very well. The gang leader acts like a, a little um, rejected, you know, brat. <laughs> yeah, who's a, who's immediately put in his place by uh, by Mercy. Um, Yes, our lead, and almost I, I want to say, other than the the Lizzie's, the only female character in the movie. Yes, so and we've got to. We yeah, so she we, is blatantly not wearing a bra. That is so wild. That was so wildly distracting to me. Um, until she puts on uh, a jacket, and, and then starts wearing the jacket for the rest of the movie. And apparently, she wore the jacket because she hurt her wrist during production and had a cast on it, they had to hide the cast. Yeah, and they quickly, it, they, um, they get around that with a quick bit of dialogue. He, uh, Swan asks her where he got the coat, and she said, stole it. 
Yeah, right. And she says, and she says that she doesn't want to be recognized because of her her red dress and there are, I don't know. There were, there were, they said on the radio that there was a girl in a red dress, you know, with the with the warriors. Right. I think I think that's what she says. I'm not quite sure. Something like that, and um, mm-hmm. so she becomes kind of a, a a love interest for Swan, and initially, yeah, was supposed to be Fox, but that actor got thrown in front of a train, and Swan didn't um, end up being abducted by Kevin Bacon's homosexual Doberman Pinscher gang, which I kind of now in hindsight would like to see. Um, it reminds me of that scene in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> oh, in the pawn shop? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's what that's what it would have been like. Uh, yeah, he was gonna. So yeah, uh, I I don't know. Th- those scenes were never shot, so we'll never know. But so Swan remains our um our protagonist. And you could see the relationship between him and Mercy develop. And it was, the script was rewritten because they could see that the, um, that Michael Beck and Deborah Van Balkenberg, the actress who plays Mercy, had real, um, chemistry on screen together. So they they decided that you kind of develop the relationship between the two of them, and it's a very tense relationship at first. They initially go from when she starts following them after they get out of the orphans' territory by throwing a Molotov cocktail into a car. I'm sorry, but the orphans, I know they're your favorite, but they come off like a bunch of pussies in this movie. <laughs> oh, they do. Oh, believe me. I still like them. No, no, they're, they're very like. I think it's almost like a com. It's it's very comedic because they go from yeah. they go from being upset that they weren't invited to the conference to saying, okay, you could you know as long as you don't want to. I think they don't say fight. A, a lot of times they say bop in this movie. Are we gonna have to bop our way out of this? And right. to me, bopping kind of feels more like a dance than a fight. Like that's just me though. I guess if somebody I, said we're gonna. Um, I always thought bopping was kind of like shagging someone. That's that's the reference I've I've heard in the past. And the um, the DJ. Let's talk about the DJ for a minute. Love she her. Talks about she, yeah. She's always coming on and saying uh, she starts everything off with "Hello, boppers." Yeah. She's addressing the boppers on the street. Now the warriors have no idea that this is all being broadcast on the radio about them, that they're being, you know, that they've been framed for this murder, for this assassination. Yep. And that there's this cool, cool black chick on the radio, like, you we, know... We only see... Helping, helping plan their demise. She's like, warriors, we're looking for you. Where are you? We're going to find you. We're, you know, and then she kind of like... I think she even drops some geographic, you know... She does. Place to, um, yeah. It's very interesting. To cue in the other gangs to come and get them. She's what I would I would say is kind of like the Greek chorus, like of a Shakespeare, absolutely, of a Shakespearean uh, of, uh, play. Greek yeah, she's like the one this is all based on. So she's she's the Greek chorus who's broadcasting, 
and it's great because we only see this actress's it's a close up of her mouth um talking into the she's a, a radio she's a DJ a disc, doc, disc jockey and um so she's playing uh music and she's also getting the word out she's kind of like the she's the voice kind of I I want to say she has to be somewhat affiliated with the Gramercy riffs because she knows right away that um Cyrus was killed and everything and uh-huh. the first song that she plays is perfect she plays nowhere to run um, oh yeah which which is yeah. just, just like it's a fun song but you're like oh oh yeah. no it's um and then throughout the so it's kind of funny it's almost like a like there's 15 minute episodes of a TV show like of each gang interaction they interact with the orphans that's like one episode then um they get they get split up um because there's a fire on one of the subway tracks and the reason that there's a fire in the subway tracks is they were they were when they were writing the screenplay they were trying to figure out um they were they so they asked the subway authority they're like what would stop a train from go- from going? Like, we need to find a way to get these characters off the train because if they don't, if they stay in the train and make it back to Coney Island, there's no movie. So they said a fire would do it. So then there's a fire on the tracks and they got to uh, get off the subway and they get uh, split up, uh, running through the city after the orphans and the mercies playing with them and each thing's like a little episode you got the episode with the lizzies you got the episode with the baseball furies it's and in between that we have the disc jockey who's kind of keeping us up to date on what's happening and also keeping so it it's it also keeps the other gangs up to date on where exactly the warriors were last spotted and it, so it make it makes sense in a storytelling way that, because other than that, New York City's huge. Like, what are the odds of them running into a gang every 15 minutes unless they were told exactly where the Warriors were last seen? Mm-hmm. 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 That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, um... So in between, it's like, it's like, like, in, like, I don't just, just bear with me for a minute. I know Please. I've mentioned The Wiz before that movie, but I mean, The Wiz came out a year earlier, and it's like it's about Dorothy finding her way back to Harlem after hurricane, after a tornado has dropped her off in Brooklyn. I can't help but, but you know, see similarities here in her voyage and the Warriors' voyage. You know, within a year of each other in in the. In mainstream movies, no, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Finding your way back home through 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 the triborough, yeah, the triborough area. So, um, there's just a we're already coming close to an hour. So, um, there's okay. just there's a Wrap lot. There's just a, this is just a lot to say about this movie, and, um, I suppose if you mentioned, I guess one of the, um, the fan favorites, he wasn't my favorite character, but the character we, we mentioned earlier, we should probably mention what happens to Ajax, because other than, uh, so Fox dies, Cleon dies, Ajax gets arrested, and the rest of them make it back to Coney Island safely. 
Ajax gets handcuffed to a park bench by Mercedes Royal, who's an undercover cop he's trying to bop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or shag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> baby. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah, that's a very interesting scene because, um, it's very intense. Yeah. And it's... He's flipping out. It's very well acted because you... Until you find out she's a cop, you, you really feel like this, uh, this, this woman's gonna get assaulted and raped. It's... Yeah, but there's, there's, there is an element of, like, how much danger and trouble is she looking for before you realize she's an undercover cop. Yeah, he does, he does start off... And like, he should have thought that. That should have gone through his head, too. It's not well, thinking. Well, like I said, he, he's not the smartest member of the Warriors. Okay. Uh, if he was smart, he would have just stuck with the rest of the gang, because they all, they all say, he's like, I'm going to go get some exercise. That's how he phrases it. He's like, I don't know about you guys, I'm going to go get some exercise when he sees her in the park. And the rest of them are like, well, we're going to wait until we get home, which is what a smart gang member would do. <laughs> you wait yeah. to get home, you got plenty of women back in Coney Island, but I guess he wants, um, he wants some... He's probably upset with all of them. He probably has, so he, but he wants some Central Park action. And, uh, <laughs> so, um... To show where our um, our recognition of this actress goes, you, so you remember her from um, Mercedes. She's done a lot. Okay. She's done a lot of film and TV. I saw her in a play on Broadway. I saw her in an Edward Albee play about called um, "Who Is Sylvia or the Goat?" That is the name of the play. It was it was called "Who Is Sylvia or the Goat," and it was her and Bill Pullman. And Bill Pullman falls in love with a goat, and she's his wife, and she has to deal with it. And she, at the end, she drags on stage the, the dead carcass of the goat. She's killed the goat. She, she's, a, she, she's a jealous wife who's killed her lover, her husband's lover, and it happens to be a goat. Yeah, yeah. So That's what I saw in live in. That sounds... Much more interesting than the only thing I recognize her from, and I think I told you this before we started recording, was, wow, that's the mom from Last Action Hero. <laughs> you remember her from like what sounds like a very interesting story about, um, and I can only hope that it's Bill Pullman's autobiographical story of his love of goats, allegedly. Um, but that's a, what does he really have a love of goats? Oh, I was making a joke. Oh, That's sorry, why I said sorry, sorry. <laughs> alleged, uh -huh. allegedly. Okay. okay. No. Um, uh, the cult film companion does not think that Bill Pullman actually loves goats in a sexual way. In that way. No, we don't. Um, but we do think that that's much more interesting than the mother from Last Action Hero, which is a mostly forgettable Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, box office bomb. Um, well, and I, telling you, I remember when that movie came out, it got hyped to all heaven and hell. And uh, and I, I think I was saying that it probably made money, but it just, you know, it was supposed to be the blockbuster to end all blockbusters. And it made Hollywood rethink the way they did blockbusters after that. 
Well, maybe another day we can do a deep dive on Last Action Hero, but let's not hold our no. breaths. Let's, no. No. <laughs> so, um, our boy Ajax is then, yeah, handcuffed to a park bench. And despite all, despite being handcuffed to a park bench, he's, he tries to fight the cops. And All right. He does a pretty good job. That's actually the scene that James Remar auditioned. That's um, the scene that he used for his audition for the movie, and he acted it out like in a in a conference room. And he acted like he actually lifted like a conference room table, like he was the Incredible Hulk to like show off his like anger and range of the character and how intense he was. And that's how he got the job. Oh, right on. Cool. So, um. Let's get down to the final act of the movie. Our our heroes, our anti-heroes, our protagonists, the warriors, the remaining seven of them. Six? Yes, six I, of them. Yeah, yeah. It would be six of them and Mercy finally make it back to Coney Island. And they're immediately disillusioned as they look around Coney Island and said, We fought all night for this? Which I, su- <laughs> what, which I suppose is... Uh, a lot of people's reaction to waking up at Coney Island every day. I can <laughs> only hypothesize. Um, yeah. But then we get... Um, so throughout the course of the night, the rogues, led by David Patrick Kelly, who shot Cyrus, are following the warriors because the warriors are the only ones that know that... Um, the rogues, and I think the character's name is Vermin, the leader of the rogues. I think that's he, his name. You should, you should know. He's a big deal in this movie. David, I know the actor, David Patrick Kelly, and I know it's funny because he's the leader of the rogues, and he's not a very physically intimidating guy. <laughs> But it looks like he's five feet high. He he, do, he does. He's probably around. He's probably like five five, five six. Um, and not to say that anyone in this movie is like huge or gigantic, but you know the, the size difference. He he's almost got like I know they call it a Napoleon complex, and I know Napoleon wasn't really as short as uh, I guess the rumors or hyperbole make him out to be. But the term Napoleon complex kind of. Um, Deals with someone that um, it feels small, I guess, in stature, insecure, and that's the way he comes across. Except for kind of like a Bill thing going on. Yeah, he's um, yeah, he's the kind. If, if you told him to go get his shine box, uh, you're gonna end up dead in the back of a car. Um, yeah, but. So, this last scene leads up to the most iconic line in the movie, the line that this movie's kind of been known for, other than my poor imitation of Can You Dig It, which I still regret doing earlier in the episode. Um, there's the taunt that he does. So, they're, the rogues are cruising around Coney Island looking for the warriors, and they finally spot them, and they're in a... It look it looks like I think it's a Cadillac hearse, which is a very interesting combination. Um, you got a Cadillac and you got a hearse, and you make a Cadillac hearse. Yeah. 
And then the most iconic line in the movie is... Warriors! Warriors! Come out to play! And the whole time he's clanking these beer bottles together with his fingers. And it's so creepy and unnerving the way he says it. And with the, I think it's even more unnerving because you hear the clinking first for a couple seconds. You just hear, like, bottles clinking together. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so you hear bottles clinking together, and then you hear him do the taunt. And yeah. that, that was completely improvised. Um, so Walter Hill, he didn't have a... He, he wasn't sure how to wrap up that scene and get them to the beach for the fight. So he, he told the, the actor, um, just come up with something. And so the actor uh, hopped out of the Cadillac hearse and uh, went under the boardwalk, got some bottles, started clinking them together and doing his... Warriors! Warriors! Kind of taunt. And... Um, so what are your thoughts on this, this this very brief but iconic scene now? I, I, could t- I didn't know it was iconic when I... I hate that word. I Sorry. didn't know it was so well known when I, when I was watching it, and I could tell it was uh, improvised. And he, was, he, did, he, does a really, he does a really good job with it. Uh, and uh, I also, after, after viewing it and after reading about it, I... Twisted Sister actually wrote a song about based on that, and uh, and I, I know that song. So now that I know that song, I know where they got it from. It's uh, an added reference that filled in a, a gap for me. But he did he did a really good job. That's a very uh, that is a, an extremely creepy part of the movie, and it comes at the end of the movie when things are winding down, and this is going to be it. This is going to be the final final showdown. So, before we get to the final showdown, so this actor, like we mentioned, improvised this, and this this actually came, because he grew up in New York City, and this he was actually taunted as a child by one of his neighbors, who was probably in a gang, allegedly, I don't know, I'm guessing, but he would taunt this, he would taunt this actor as a kid, when they were both kids, when they were both younger, and be like, David, David, come out to play. And um, so he just used that, and and it's it's been referenced, yeah, most notably in a Twisted Sister song. It's also been referenced in numerous cartoons, The Simpsons, Bob's Burgers, all those um, um, kind of shows have referenced that. Um, as well as, um, I'm not going to s- sing the exact lyric because it has a very uh, bad racial slur in it, but it's also used in a Wu-Tang Clan song. And um, so that's how I actually knew it. I knew the same, it's one. Of, it's weird, because it's one of those things that I knew that, I knew that line, but I didn't know where I knew it from. And Really? Yeah! Is this before, is this before... The Warriors was part of part of your movie collection. Yes, I knew I I knew the line and I I call it um oh god 
just the way culturally certain things are ingrained in you. Um, cultural osmosis. Like, you know something cultural. Yeah. And um, I guess an example of like cultural osmosis would be um, the association of a, a hockey mask with Friday the 13th, having never seen any of the Friday the 13th movies. Well, I have now. But I knew, I knew Friday the 13th was the slasher horror movie with the guy with the hockey mask. And that's kind of like how right. cultural, appro uh, cultural osmosis works. You kind of know something because it's either referenced or parodied or homaged in, in, in various different forms throughout the years that it kind of just becomes ingrained in our pop culture. Even if the movie The Warriors is ingrained in that po the pop culture, you might be familiar with Can You Dig It? And you might be familiar with... Are you there? You dropped out to me. Yeah, I was just talking about how something... That's where we were at. Yeah, I was just talking about how uh, something might be coming ingrained in pop culture, even though you haven't, you know, necessarily seen it. And that was right. my experience. Yeah, and that was my experience with the Warriors. I had known the, um... I had known the... I knew Can You Dig It? But I didn't know where Can You Dig It came from. And I knew the warrior's taunt. And then, um, so yes, the final scene of the movie is um, where this most resembles a western, which um, Walter Hill has stated that all his movies, even Brewster's Millions, are. Um, and this is very much like the final showdown in a western. You got the two gangs on the beach, you got the rogues, and you got the warriors. Do you want to... Uh, Take it away and uh, wrap up this final scene for us. <laughs> you made me wrap this up. Um, the, 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 the thing that I can comment on is the most is the way <laughs> when our war when our warrior came out and played guy gets stabbed in the arm. He goes from being the 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 meanest, most ominous little guy to the biggest wimp I've ever ever seen in my life. Just totally just like melts to the down. <laughs> and I remember and I you know, and I remember thinking, I know this is probably real unrealistic to to actually say, but these guys are in gangs. I was thinking to myself, just rip the knife out of your arm and go back and get a fight. You know, just come on. Where's your guts? Where's the meat and potatoes? Well it also so, should be mentioned that, that cracked that cracked me up. It should also be mentioned that he had a gun. <laughs> he's pointing oh. a he's pointing a gun. Did he still have that gun on him with the knife in his arm? No, he dropped the gun after that. But I'm just saying to start out the confrontation, he's got a gun. Swan has a knife. They're facing oh, yeah. off. Um, yeah. And they're they're about to settle the score. And um, yeah, he ends up with the knife and knife in his arm. And then the Gramercy Riffs show up, and they had overheard the whole conversation where they kind of um, um, spilled the beans on the fact that the rogues and vermin were the ones that actually killed Cyrus, and it wasn't the warriors. And then the Gramercy Rifts just circle around, and they just kind of envelop um, the handful of the rogues there, and you just know that that gang's all taken care of. And, um... 
in the Gramercy riffs, they say, you warriors, you're all right. And Swan just looks at him and goes, it's kind of cheesy line. He's like, we're the best. Which is kind of, it's kind of like a cheesy, it's kind of like a cheesy action line. But like, I think this movie. I, I, I bought it. I bought it. And I actually thought it was kind of nervy of him to say that to the, you know, to the leader of the leading game. Yeah. So, um, just one quick note, I think we should just note that throughout the course of the movie, um, the Warriors aren't sure exactly whether or not the treaty is off, and it's only because of um, the Lizzie's that they find out that they're the ones being framed for the murder. So, um, and then the movie wraps up with our, um, our DJ again. Who says that it was? A, she talks about how it was a long night, but uh, the Warriors made it home. And the yeah, real... she says she says we. She basically says we got it wrong, folks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Warriors are in the clear. And uh, and then I'm sorry. I love this movie, but I do not like the song that ends this movie in the city by Joe Walsh. Of the Eagles, it seems kind of out of place. <laughs> it's just like a weird way of ending your movie because the music, which was done by Barry Davorzen, um, created what is ostensibly, and he's noted as being the first time that a uh, a score was created for a movie that is very much rock music, but it's led by synthesizers. Instead of guitars. And, yeah, um, no. yeah, go on. No, I just, I, the, the score of the movie is great, and it keeps, you know, it keeps your, it adds tension when it needs to, and, um... It does. It creates, it, it created, or this movie, this movie created an aesthetic, we're talking about 1979, that went on afterwards with other movies. Uh, Escape from New York is most notable, um, uh, Mond- I've never seen Mondo, New York, but I would imagine it's kind of like this. Even Blade Runner, uh, which is all in Blade Runner, it's always raining, so you've got the slick streets. They did decided to do that for the Warriors too. They said let's wet everything down, and it and it had a great effect. Uh, so so movies like the Warriors started something that went on into the eighties. And when I think of uh, urban. Uh, nighttime uh, movies of this ilk. I think of the early '80s, and I think of synthesized soundtracks uh, and wet streets. You know, you know, under under streetlights. So that was uh, very intentional. That aesthetic. Uh, the cinematographer was Andrew Laszlo, who said that there's a scene shown early on. Um, where they're actually initially running away, the Warriors are running away from the initial conference, and it show, it's uh, downpouring. It doesn't rain throughout the rest of the movie, but you see that the streets are wet, and that was um, that scene was put in so they, they could use it as an excuse to wet down the streets and have a very interesting aesthetic of seeing like streetlights reflecting in the puddles on the street. That was all very, very um, systematic. It was... Um, it was definitely uh, made to be that way, and um, yeah. I think they were saying they could actually save money with the budget by doing that. Yes, 
by creating that look so easily just with water. Yep. And it's a very, it's a very beautiful, like it's visually a very interesting movie and it's very well choreographed. It's very well directed. And, um, the scene transitions now, if you watch the movie in the director's cut are, are kind of splash pages of comic books. It's like a comic book panel and it, um, then it like it almost like flipping the page of a comic book. Then you um, have a new panel started, and the transitions of the movie are um, are done that way. And they weren't initially done when it was released in 1979. It, it wasn't until 2005 that these um, changes were made. And um, unlike a lot of directors, well, I guess not a lot of directors, but I would say like 50-50 directors are. Are, are willing to go back and do a, a director's cut of a movie or a re-edit of the movie. To, uh, or If you're George Lucas, you completely change your Star Wars movies, but a lot of directors do that. Um, Walter Hill, um, no, not notorious, but is, is um, he doesn't do a lot of uh, director's commentaries for his movies. He doesn't. He likes the movies to kind of speak for themselves. And The Warriors is uh, notably one of the only movies that he's ever changed later on because the initial prologue that we discussed about the um, the Greek and Persian armies was originally scripted and it was supposed to be narrated by Orson Welles, and um, it's now narrated by. Uh, Walter Hill himself, and there's an opening illustration to start off the movie, and then the movie wraps up with my uh, least favorite song in the movie, Joe Walsh, In the City. It just, it just seems out of place to me. I don't like the way that it... I love the movie. I don't like the, the song choice at the end, but that's just me. Wasn't it, wasn't it written, was it written for the Warriors? I yes, think it was. It, it was. Uh, Joe Walsh <laughs> wrote it with Barry... Dave Vorzen, who did the uh, the rest of the score, and then it was um, recorded by the um, the Eagles, and I think it became a pretty pretty uh, pretty hot single for the Eagles. So I, I think it's a it was a good paycheck for Mr. Dave Vorzen. Um, but yeah. uh, just wrapping up this movie, it was uh, the Warriors, which was directed by Walter Hill, screenplay adapted by David Shadler and Walter Hill, produced by Lawrence Gordon, cinematography by Andrew Laszlo that we just mentioned with the lighting and um, the aesthetics that he created. And I'm not going to go through all four editors that were used on this movie. <clears throat> That's very unusual. That, that worked around the clock, I believe. Yes. To get it, to get it. Finished and released. So they the Wanderers before the Wanderers came out, and they did beat the Wanderers. But um, four editors is very unusual for a movie. And the fact that um, watching the movie, sometimes you can tell that there's been too many editors involved. Yep. And yeah. This movie, That's true. if you had told me that only one person edited it, edited it, oh god, that's a bad <laughs> phrase. If you told me that more than one person edited this movie. I believe you because you'd be telling me the truth four people edited it. 
But um, it looks like one person. <laughs> but it it looks like only one person worked on it, which just I guess has to go to the credit of Walter Hill for being um like the general of this army. <clears throat> I don't think it looks like one person edited edited it. You think it looks, it looks like? Yes, I think oh. it's kind of like a little all over the place with its editing, to tell you the truth. But it's it it works. It still comes yeah. together. You can you can you can follow what's going on. I suppose now, yeah. Now I guess you know what you kind of. I would I would guess two. I wouldn't guess four. I think some of the slow. I think the in their use of slow motion in this movie is um, it's minimal. But I think the fact that it's so minimal that it is very effective when it is used. It's used very briefly to kind of, like, heighten, like, one particular act of violence. I think, like, one character's thrown through a door in slow motion. Another's, like, thrown into a bathroom sink. Um, but again, for a movie... It is used well. Mm. And again, for a movie about gangs and violence, um, it is violent, yes. There's very little gun use play. There's very little blood. Um... It's not gory, and it doesn't glamorize the violence. It doesn't glorify the violence. Um, but it's just kind of like, like I said, it's a very neutral look on gangs. It's just kind of like, this is a day in the life or a night in the life of what, you know, Coney Island gang might get up to if they were thrown into the Bronx. Yeah, I definitely got a sense of adventure watching this movie, albeit, you know, it's it's ominous, they don't know what they're up against, and it's one battle after another, but the whole thing of it is an adventure, and if you've been to New York or lived in New York, you, you understand how that sense of adventure is pretty innate to the city itself. It's, it's fun. So in that regards, it's fun. It's a popcorn flick. It is. It's a really good popcorn flick, and, um... <laughs> So, uh, very briefly wrapping this up. So, initially, the movie uh, was not well-received by critics. Um, the audiences loved it. A lot of them are gang members and caused violence, getting it yanked. But uh, more recently, I guess around 2005, it kind of went through, I guess, what you would say a critical reappraisal is. And um, critics kind of looked back on the movie, and uh, critics that had... I guess they didn't kind of see what kind of movie it was for the time. I guess, I, I guess taken out of context from the 70s and early 80s, looking back on it um, two decades later, they kind of looked at it from a more detached point of view and just saw it for what it was, a really good adventure movie, you know? It's well, yeah. it's well written. Some of the act acting is a little wooden, it's a little stilted. But, um, yeah, 2005, the director's cut came out, um, a video game. I want to see that. I want to see it now. The, um, I think you saw the director. If you saw, did you, did your version have the opening animated no. prologue? No? No. Oh, okay. No. I'll show it to you someday. And, um, yeah, so in 2005, uh, action figures were made, a video game was released, and, um, what? yeah. So, like, a whole critical reappraisal went on with this movie, and it's since grown on to be one of the most... Uh, it's very often on, like, top 100 cult films or controversial films for its time. 
like I said, that's more because of when it came out, what happened surrounding it. Um, but all in all, unless you have any, do you have any final thoughts about the Warriors? I have one last thing to say before we, uh, we go for this episode. I do have one last final thought, and I, I think I forgot it. Oh, for heaven's sakes. What did I want to say about the Warriors in closing? Oh, maybe not. Maybe it's all been said. All right, so I'm going to wrap up this episode of The Warriors with the original tagline for the movie. This tagline was featured in all the original advertising and was very controversial, and eventually this tagline was banned when all the promotional material was yanked from theaters, television, and radio. But the tagline of the movie is, These are the armies of the night. They are 100,000 strong. They outnumber the cops 5 to 1. They could run New York City. Oh, right. Oh, 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 oh yeah. That's right. So, about that. for the... Yeah. For that's, the big. that's big. That's big. I mean, that's inciting. <laughs> that's inciting language right there. Yeah. And in... Um, in retrospect, maybe we should have started out with that tagline, but I kind of saved it for the end because I think this movie does something very interesting. Its big action set piece is at the very beginning of the movie, that scene at the park. And most movies, ha they save their big action set piece for the very end, and the, um, the ending for the movie, which we just wrapped up with, is just a showdown on the beach between three of the gangs. And the big action set piece was um, at the beginning of the movie. So we're ending the episode with the tagline of the movie, which doesn't really make any sense whatsoever. But, the, you know, this is our it's podcast. It's extremely relevant because that's true, and that was a big deal. The cops were outnumbered by the gangs. So, well then I'm glad I, I, I made a little bit of sense in this episode. So, for, <laughs> for the Cult Film Companion Podcast, my name is Chris. I've been your host. My uh, very esteemed co-host, Andrew, uh, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? Goodbye, and thank you for listening. Bye now. See you next week. <laughs>